Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Hazan et HaOla Kulo Betulo Lechem Bechaset Rachamim Unoten Lechem Lechol Basar Ki Leolam Pasto Uchuvo Agadol Tamid Lechasar Lanu Lealechasar Lanu Mahazon Leolam Ba'et Amen. All right. Well, for those listening from afar, this is Peku Day. This is the final portion, uh, only read as a uh, final portion of the book of Shemot in a leap year, and uh, hopefully we'll understand the reason for the sacrifices by the time we're done with this, and uh, there we are. So... By way of announcement. Wrights had their baby. The Wrights had their baby, and Tuesday is the bris. And, um, or brit, or, or right? And uh, the bris mila. The bris mila. So that'll be, uh, that'll be exciting at the uh, right home. Don't go to the wrong home. Yeah. Oh. It does it. Yeah, it says, well, it's a mobile home, yeah. Yeah, so that's exciting. That's this Tuesday night, 7 p.m. Next uh, Wednesday, a week from this Wednesday, of course, we have uh, Erev Purim, and we'll have the uh, opportunity to uh, go ahead and meet up at the non-clubhouse after the pool, second pool, Pseudo Huber thing. And the address is in the, uh, in the invitation. That is uh, BYOB, so bring your Bible uh, and, a, and a bottle of whatever it is, your favorite tasty beverage. And uh, we will break the fast uh, quickly, I hope, and then uh, read the entire Megillah before we do so. You got to read the Megillah. Well, yeah. fast won't end until like. Until we, you got to read the Megillah regardless. So um, remember that uh, tonight, um, after Havdalah, and after you go to sleep, we change the clocks. So we are going to spring forward, and you will lose an hour of sleep, which means that the fast will be even longer on Purim. Well, what can you do? So there it is. Yes. <laughs> so. So that's a week from this Wednesday. Then, um, again, as I said earlier today, uh, look for an email from me to all the men. So hopefully we'll get together uh, for a nice relaxing evening um, where we can discuss the fast of the firstborn uh, prior to Passover and uh, who really should fast. And from an Orthodox perspective, as well as a non-Orthodox perspective, should you fast? Why might you want to fast? Should women fast? Is it only the 
child that opens the womb? Is it the child that opens the womb that happens to be a boy? Is it the boy? Is it always the firstborn boy? We're going to go through all of that and hopefully not come to really any conclusions holochically, but rather just what are you going to do this year for Passover? So that's the deal there. Marianne, it's good to see you. Um, Marianne. For those of you who have not seen Josiah, Little fella is there with the cutest little shoes, and he's wearing pants. He's so big. Sweet now. little boy. <laughs> and, uh, I just want to say, whoever tied those shoes did an amazing job because they're very tiny. Pretty incredible, yeah. That's okay. He's going to get new shoes every week. <laughs> no doubt there, yeah. That is great. So we are glad that you guys are here and uh, glad that Joe is, is with us. So any uh, announcements that I have missed? Or we need to be aware of Mrs. Quattrini, are we anything there? Yeah. Uh, anyone who wants to take a white mailbox home? Yeah. You know, <laughs> on the front lawn, you're welcome to that. Yeah, it's not ours. Yeah, I don't know. And, and I didn't put it on the lawn either. Um, but anybody who wants to take it home, you know, you're really, you're welcome. Nice mailbox, really. It really is. Yeah. Tupperware mailbox. Yeah, it's a Tupperware mailbox. It is a Tupperware mailbox. All right. So if there's nothing else. Keep your fresh. Joshua? Let us, uh, let us study the Torah together. Alrighty, so um, I'm going to actually start at the end, which is kind of confusing. Um, but we're not going to stop at the end. We're going to go back to the beginning. But you have to start at the end. And the end, this is the glory of God filled the tabernacle. This is from the very end of Exodus chapter 40. And Cause I, cause, Oh, yeah, so right. Not, yeah, not, not that one. Okay. Um, and there's a great... Uh, Midrash about this. Now, my if, if you've been following my dad's Bible studies for the last what, 20 years, um, one of the things my dad's been pushing for a really long time uh, is this idea that the tabernacle was to go back to the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden was more than just paradise. It was the place where God was. It was a human uh, a, a, a realm in which humans could interact with God in a physical capacity, where they could literally be in the presence of God. And the tabernacle was recreating that from the, 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 the types of uh, materials used to build it to the cherubim, the angels on the, that, are, that are interwoven in the, in the fabric and on the, the ark, so on and so forth. So my dad's been saying this for a long time. The sages agree with him. Um, and uh, the, the Midrash Rabbah, which is sort of a compilation of a lot of different commentaries from things about the scriptures, um, uh, Midrash Rabbah, has a very interesting comment about the this particular section. And they tie it to the Song of Songs. Now, if you're getting ready to do the traditional readings, you know that uh, poor, uh, Pesach, during the week of Pesach, we read the Song of Songs. This is a good, a good thing to be thinking about. Song of Songs, according to tradition, is all about God and his people Israel. Obviously, I, I think that it was probably also about Solomon and someone that he was in love with, but, but, thematic, like, uh, but thematically, but symbolically, the reason why it's scripture is a lot of it is about the relationship of God and his people. Um, real quick, and then we'll come back here. Just before, yeah, just before you get to that, if you have an opportunity to read, if you buy one book for Passover, you should buy Song of Psalms from our scroll. It is Rashi's translation of Song of Psalms, and it is beautiful and wonderful. He also, the same translation is also in your Chumash. If you have a Chumash, it's in the back there within the part of the Megillah, the Megillot, the different, all the different readings. So, um... The, uh, the Midrash says this. What is the meaning of the verse, Song of Songs 5.1? I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride, 
This means that God is saying, I have returned to my bridal chamber, to the place which has been my principal abode from the very beginning. For was not the principal abode of the Shekinah in the terrestrial regions? And I had to think about this for a second. Terrestrial is our part of the universe. Extraterrestrial will be outside of the earth. So terrestrial regions means was not his abode on earth. Okay. Um, for so it is written, Genesis 3, 8, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. So do you see what the, the sages did there? They took this verse, I have come into my garden from Song of Songs, and it's about romance. That's the point of it. They go, well, where, did, where was God most romantic with his people? It was in the garden of Eden. So they have garden and garden, right? So that's the, that's the imagery there. But then the, the, the Midrash continues to say, but when Adam sinned, the Shekinah betook itself to the first heaven. When Cain sinned, it betook itself to the second heaven. When the generation of Enosh sinned, it ascended to the third heaven. The, uh, then so on and so forth. Generation of flood, and it went up to the fourth heaven. Babel, and it went up to the fifth heaven. All the way up to the seventh heaven. According to tradition, there are seven heavens. So it's essentially eight layers up now, right? So it was on our level, and now because of sin, God has withdrawn his presence further and further and further away from man. Then arose seven righteous people who brought the Shekinah down from the celestial to the terrestrial regions. Abraham brought it down from the seventh heaven to the sixth. Isaac brought it down from the sixth to the fifth. Jacob brought it down from the fifth to the fourth. Levi brought it down from the fourth to the third. Kohat brought it down from the third to the second. Amram brought it down from the second to the first. And Moshe brought it down from the celestial to the terrestrial region. When did the Shekinah come to dwell on earth? On the day when the tabernacle was erected, as it says, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. And if you think about it, it's even symbolically in the account. What, what, what's the imagery? And we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but what's the imagery we've got here? The imagery is the cloud that was, last time we saw the cloud, as Rabbi Foreman points out in his videos this week, was on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is up here. Where does the cloud then appear? Down below with the people. It literally moved from up to down, in front of the people. They could watch this happen. On top of that physical movement, it's symbolic of the overall shift, which is that God, who is above all of us, has now come to dwell in our midst. So it's both literally, physically, a movement from high to low, but it's also symbolic of this idea that, as we're seeing in the Midrash, that God, who, of course, is at really everywhere, but in a sense of dwelling, is above us. We cannot be in God's presence. He has now come to dwell in our midst, in the, in the presence of the tabernacle. He would do the same thing in the form of Messiah Yeshua. And ultimately, when we read these passages in the, in the prayers, in the, in, uh, before we get uh, earlier, get to the parts, talk about, when will you reign in Zion? Soon in our days. The idea is literally, we want God to be physically among us again. And that is what we're talking about in the book of Revelation, this, this imagery of God is with us. It says there will be no temple. In other words, if the tabernacle was God's presence among us as close as we could get at that stage, the new heaven and the new earth will escalate that. There will not even be a temple. God will literally dwell in the midst of his people with no interface in between. There will be us and there will be God, and it will be the garden all over again. Yes, sir. So to uh, dovetail onto that, even even the description of the language, you know, is very similar. So if you go back to the creation account, right, uh, or, or even if you go to, 
you can go to the creation account in Bereshit. You can even go to some of the Psalms, for example. I think it's Psalm, uh, I believe it's 139, if I'm not mistaken, that talks about God stretched the heavens like curtains. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Well, what are we making? We're making curtains, you know, to to um, to put around the tabernacle. He um, he separates the waters above from the waters below, right, with a firmament. Well, that is likened in the in in, in the midrash in in Tanhuma, That's likened to the veil yeah. separates the holy of holies from the holy place. Right. right? Uh, you mentioned the cherubim that are woven into the veil, right? That's likened to the two cherubim that guarded the way right. into the center of the garden, right? Uh, we enter the Garden of Eden from the east. Ah, right, right. We enter the temple That's from cool. the east. I hadn't right? thought of that. Um, uh, you know, so there's all these things. And then even, uh, even you know, on the fourth day... God created the luminaries, right? Well, we create a we create a menorah, menorah, right? Which is the only light in the in the Mishkan. Uh, we on the sixth day He creates the um, the birds and the animals, right? Or maybe the birds. It's the fifth day. Mm-hmm. He creates birds, and animals, right? Which, according to the midrash, that's that's likened to the sacrifices that we offer mm-hmm. right because we offer up those kinds of animals in the, in, in the sanctuary he gathered the waters right well we gather living water in the labor right and, right and, and so so there's very much a, a very parallel. distinct parallel and at the end of this at the end of the creation Hashem looks at it all says it's says it's good and he, and he blesses it and if you go to the end of this Parsha, what does it say? It says Moshe inspected it all, and it doesn't use the word good, but he, he basically inspected it all, and he blesses it, and, he, and he, he blesses it. There we go. So there's definitely these parallels. So the, the Mishkan is an attempt to take us back to the, to the garden to provide a place where Hashem can dwell in unity with us, right? Again. Absolutely, and I, I'm glad you brought that one up because I was gonna I was gonna talk about the Hebrew there because the parallels is actually almost frightening, um, in, in a good way. Um, Rabbi David Foreman talks about this idea that God creates the universe as you're describing, and what is the universe? The universe is a carve out of the existence that God is is in at that point, the chaos that God is apparently in. He carves out a realm in which humans can dwell, out of his environment, if you will. He creates a place where humans can be present. Then the tabernacle is almost like our reciprocation back to God. Out of our world, we carve out a realm of holiness that God is able to dwell in. And ultimately, it's, it's reciprocating the same concept as we want to live with you. We want to be with you. God creates a place for humans to dwell so he can interact with us. We create a place for God to dwell so we can interact with him. But the Hebrew, the tie-ins, as you're pointing out, is very close. In that... Uh, if you listen to listen to the Hebrew here, so in Genesis chapter one, um, God finishes everything, right? Built, he creates the whole the whole world, and it says verses chapter one verses thirty one, and it says this: Vayera Elohim et kol asher asa tov tov meot. Okay, literally translated, and God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Notice the key words there: He saw Yera. 
Hine, behold, it was very good. And Asa, made. Now listen, this is the same verse that you just quoted from a second ago, or paraphrased. Genesis 39, 43. Listen to, listen to the words here. Ve'yera Moshe. It starts exactly the same. Ve'yera Moshe et kol hamelaka, which is the, the, the work, which by the way is also a word that is talked about with God in the creation story. Ve'hine. There's that word again. Asu, which is the which is the same word for asa, the same word for make, but in the in the plural form for the people of Israel. In other words, it says Moses saw the entire work and behold, they had done it. And it's crazy because if you think about it, the first one God declared this is good, right? God saw and behold, it was very good. Now they did. Moses sees, and what does he see? He sees it's exactly what God said to do, which is exactly what we got throughout the Genesis one's account. God saw. It was good. God defined good. Now God has defined good, and man has done exactly what he said was good. And so the imagery there is, is, as you're pointing out, is absolutely on purpose. This is our creation of the universe, a place for God to dwell, because the goal was to get back to those opening times at the very beginning. That was the reason we did all this. That is the purpose here. Yes, sir. It's actually this portion and the next portion, to me, are are probably the most fundamental in understanding the work of Messiah ever. Mm. Christian theology says that the temple is 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 a foreshadowing of Messiah and his work. The sacrifices are a foreshadowing. Unfortunately, Christian theology is only right by half, and the and the other side, Ju- Judaism's theology is incorrect as well <clears throat> in this regard because what we see is that the temple was created the tabernacle was created it was perfectly acceptable to god he came down and he filled it which is proof that it was acceptable this is not just a technicality it was actually acceptable to because <clears throat> he did it exactly according moses and the people did it exactly according to the pattern that they had seen in the mountain the, the pattern of the temple in heaven as we see in in, in hebrews chapter 9 and 10 so it was acceptable to God. The only problem is it did not serve its purpose. It absolutely could not fulfill its purpose in that moment. And that's why it's so important to understand with the next chapters in Leviticus how God fixes the problem. In other words, technically, it's needed. We have to have God's presence in us, in, in front of us. We did that, totally acceptable. God can dwell among us. The problem is we can't dwell with him. Right. So the offerings that we see in the next chapters of Leviticus provide the the mechanism, not just a technicality, not just a foreshadowing, the mechanism that makes it possible for people to be where he is. Right. That still doesn't get us back to the garden. It's an attempt, and it's closer, but still not to get us back to the garden. And this is where Judaism fails as well. Judaism does not see the offerings as, as the necessary mechanism in order to get us back into the presence of God. They only give fainting praise to that thought. These two connections, these two chapters, this, this portion and the next portion have to be tied together in that regard. Christianity fails as well in its theology because it says this is only a foreshadowing. It didn't mean anything really other than what it's supposed to type or picture. That's unfortunate as well because it actually was acceptable to God and they actually had to have offerings in order to be in his presence. And it was really a more, I mean, having Messiah here was in and of itself God's presence, but this is a more... If you want to call it true to form, 
presence. So having a temple, later a temple, and a rebuilt temple in the future does not solve the ultimate problem. It gets us closer to the garden. We still aren't there. We still have to have a building that he will dwell in that's been sanctified according to the pattern shown in the mountain. We still have to have offerings in order for us to be there. And even then, it's not exactly the same, Mm -hmm. where we need nothing other than him. So when we read in Revelation, there's no need for a temple, we say, whoa, that's a huge deal. Mm -hmm. How is it possible? And the only way is because Messiah Yeshua actually has solved, not as simply the fulfillment of the offerings, or, or a picture, the offerings picturing him, but he actually, in some way, actually solves the issue. Mm-hmm. So we will, so dwelling in heaven's not enough. He's going to be dwelling on earth. With us. With us, which means that for us to go to him, transformed, which is why Christian theology probably plays that little game. Because absolutely, I'm not the same person, so I'm there. It's okay. Right. <laughs> no, no, it's not okay, because he's going to be here. We have to have something else. Right. Not just a temple. We actually have to get rid of the temple, because the whole earth is his temple. Right. In that regard, how does it work? And the only answer is Messiah Yeshua. There has to be a sacrifice. So, Christian theology is correct. And so, look, they to- the two go together. The two go together. Right. But it's incorrect in understanding why. Messiah Yeshua's offering is the mechanism by which we can dwell in his presence with without restraint face to face as it was in the garden. Right, agreed. Absolutely. Yes, sir. So um, the 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 technical the technical issue that Ross Barlock alludes to is an important one because the Mishkan absolutely was was acceptable to God as we see, right? Uh, so there was no issue with the with the tabernacle. Um, and God orchestrated and ordained all of the uh, the sacrifices Absolutely. and the various ceremonies and everything that was required. So we know that there had there was nothing wrong with that, right? right. So the technical issue was the people were the problem. That's right. Exactly what Hebrews says. We read which, this morning. Right. So, but the problem though is in most English translations of Hebrew when it talks about yeah. the first, yeah. most English translations insert the word covenant that's, that's right. not there not in the there. Greek. Right. And, and so Christianity has taken that to mean the first covenant was bad Very good, yeah. and, when, and when you insert the word covenant they think it means the Torah. <clears throat> right. right. <laughs> God, double, double confusing. God, God forbid. Right? It, what, what's, what was bad is not the Torah, not, not the covenant. I mean, the, it was the fact that the people were not able... And Hebrew says it. Right. Find right. fault with them. Right. them. So yeah. Don't let the facts get in the way of the story. <laughs> That's true. So, so, it, so it's a very important point very because good. when we get to the prophecy of the new covenant... Right. Right? What's changing? What's changing is the people. That's right. That's not exactly, the Torah. Right. Not the... Not the I mean, we're still going to have a temple. We're still going to offer sacrifices. And then in the world to come, None of that changes. even when that does change, what's really changing? Us. Us. Right. We have changed. But when, but, but Olam Haba is the garden. Right. Right. Amen. Right. There was no need for a temple. What was the you know what was that first light on day one? Hazal said that was Messiah. What does Revelation say? The light is going to be the Lamb. Yeah. The Lamb. Right. right. So. You know, so we're going back to the future. Right? <laughs> That's very but, true. But mm. it's interesting because there's a famous. Um, hold that one. 
there's a famous uh, famous midrash in um, this is Shemot Rabbah, um, and this is Shemot Rabbah, and this is from um, uh, this is uh, section uh, 35, section four, and this is again um, you know talking about the tabernacle, right? It says Moshe said said before the Holy One, blessed is He. But they are destined one day, referring to the people, due to their recurring rebelliousness, to have neither tabernacle nor temple. Okay? Which ties also to this week's portion. Um, and what will become of them? Right? So in other words, because there's this understanding that the temple and the tabernacle is where God's presence dwells, mm-hmm. it's crucial. if... If because of, as you read in the earlier Midrash, if because of the sin of the people, the presence of God continues to remove itself farther, farther, farther away, to the point that we no longer end up with a tabernacle or temple, okay, that's kind of where we are today, right? What will become of the people if, if they can't draw close to the to your to your presence? The Holy One, blessed is He, replied, "I will take from them a righteous man and make." him collateral for them. Mm. And with this, I will mm. grant atonement to them for all their sins. That's not a messianic text. Mm. I mean, it is, but that's not, not sages, our messianic that's text. That's what we just said. That's the sages of Israel, right? So then, yeah. if we can, can we go to, can we go to the beginning of the Parsha now? Oh, well, yeah, sure, yeah. Okay, we get five again. So, the first verse, right, uh, says in Hebrew, Ale pekudeh hamishkan mishkan. Hamishkan, Mishkan. So there's the word tabernacle is there twice. Well, of course, naturally, you know, the sages look at that, and well, that's kind of, you know, because everything's, anytime you have something like that, it's it's kind of weird. There must be a reason why it's emphasizing Mishkan, Mishkan. Yeah, and for those who don't know, Hebrew, oftentimes, when you repeat something, it's like emphasizing. Very, very, if you will. It's an exclamation mark. So there's several different explanations as to why this is the case. But one of them says, well, one of the explanations is Mishkan, Mishkan is referring to the first temple right. and the second oh, temple, okay. meaning that both temples were going to be destroyed. Why? Because of the sin and rebelliousness of the people, mm-hmm. which is what the Midrash I just read was, right, right? Right, right, And another explanation says, well, don't read Mishkan, read Mishkon, right? So they changed the vowelization. Okay. Which in Hebrew is the word for collateral. <laughs> and, and what? Why is this collateral? It's, in other words, Hashem took the Mishkan as collateral because of the sin of the people, right? Right. Um, but it's interesting that they use the word collateral as one of the interpretations because, again, what did the previous midrash that I just read said? It says that Hashem would take from them for collateral a righteous man from among them. Right. So you have all of these ideas all centered around the tabernacle, um, and 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 how the tabernacle, you know, plays that role, that central role of bringing the people close to Hashem and Hashem close to Amen. the people. So very, very awesome. absolutely, yes, sir. Okay. So the dovetail off of Mr. Upham saying, like, uh, with it being the people, uh, when we look in uh, uh, chapter forty of the Parashah where it says that all the vessels shall be anointed as well. Um, when we look into the apostolic writings, um, Paul, in a number of occasions, uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, 
Uh, he says, uh, for do you not know, right, that your bodies are a temple of the living Elohim? Do you not know? So you can't, right. you can't partake in prostitution. You can't partake in uncleanliness. Don't you know that you're, you, you're not your own anymore? Right. Uh, and then in his letter to Timothy, which uh, to me kind of speaks a little bit more to it, along with Yeshua, he, his, some of his most scathing uh, remarks for a certain sect of the elders of his time were, was, you know, cleanse the inside of the cup. Right. You know, clean the inside of the cup. But Paul speaks to it in two places. In, in the letter to Timothy, uh, nevertheless, the solid foundation of Elohim stands, having this seal. Adonai knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the anointed depart from iniquity. And we know that as lawlessness, right? Depart from lawlessness. But in the great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, from dishonor, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on Adonai out of a pure heart. So, cleansing yourself, right? The vessels of the tabernacle were sanctified, you know, set apart. Um, the lump that is that is called to believe in Yeshua, who, who come through faith, the Gentiles who come through faith into covenant, not through the law for first as the Jews mm -hmm. did, right? But their first, just their first, like Cornelius, right? Their first. Who's um, Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> See, right? It's through faith, right? And then through that faith, right? And they're trusting the circumcision of their heart, right? Now, through this power from on high, right, they're able and they see the beauty in the covenant, right? Mm -hmm. So the covenant has been renewed, not replaced, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, like uh, Mrs. Spurlock was saying earlier, there's that teaching that somehow the, uh, the covenants have been replaced, right? But it's, it's just renewed, right, with a better promise, with a better yeah. priest, with, 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 you know, and, and in some ways, it's a little bit stricter because, you know, unlike the sacrifices of the animals, you can't sacrifice Messiah again, hmm. right? So yeah. in this walk, you know, like our heart has to be sincere. And I, I think this is one way that Mashiach has remedied that problem is because now, you know, there's, there is a... Um, uh, your conscience is provoked when you right. think about, um, you know, he suffered for you, and he didn't have to. You know, he 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 gave his blood, right? It had nothing to do with what you were doing. Hmm. He did this so that we could take part and be with his Father, with our Creator. You know, and I mean, it, it's it's just powerful to know that or, or to see that. Yes, it's circumspect in how we have to walk and everything like that, but as far as, you know, knowing that, hey, man, you know, if I'm going to take part and I'm going to be with the Father, I'm going to have to clean myself up. Right, and that's, that's a good point because, yes, you're absolutely right. The Messiah is the, that initial cleansing. He's the one that, he's the anointing, if you will, you know, that we get from the sanctification that you get from these passages. But like Paul is pointing out, just because it's a vessel in a good place with a good purpose 
does not necessarily mean that it can fulfill that purpose. Mm -hmm. It has to be cleaned. It has to be maintained um, to some degree. And in this concept, we see in the, the Hebrew, actually, it's very interesting. Um, Judaism, earlier in this portion, God said, I will dwell among them. Well, Hebrew, the word for that, I think it's betochen, which literally translates in them. So the, the sages already are commenting to this, saying it's more than just that God would dwell in their midst in the sense that like, he would be in the middle of the camp. But it was the idea that God would actually dwell inside of them mm. is part of the imagery going there, which is exactly what Paul is getting at. It's not a new concept. It's, it's an old one. Yeah. He's simply reappropriating it. But, the, but at the same time, Judaism also teaches throughout its con when it talks about man being the receptacle of the presence of God, mm. and they say this, that the patriarchs were like, they were the kings of this, right? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But they were only able to do that when they were in the right place. Like if they were even to the point of like even to the point of like sadness, they say that like the spirit of God doesn't rest on sadness. So like if you're down in the dumps, and then like even though you might be righteous and like God accepts you, and not necessarily anything wrong per se, but the presence of God is not going to be necessarily as powerful there because the presence of God comes in full force in joy. And so the idea being that like even even like the elite, right? Even guys like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and and Moshe who are like top shelf. Like, they had to maintain themselves, themselves spiritually, themselves emotionally and whatnot, to be receptacles, to be those ongoing receptacles for Hashem. Tradition says that the chariot of Hashem is actually, like, the patriarchs. There's some weird phrases about God came upon them, almost like he was, like, like riding their back, kind of, kind of an idea. It's like this idea that, like, literally they were the vehicles that carry God. So that's the same thing that applies to us, too. Like, you want to experience God's presence in your own life, You've got, as Paul's pointing out, you've got to clean that stuff out. You've got to get those bad things away because where those things are, God cannot be. So if you don't do that, then you're not going to experience the same filling, as it were, that, that you could. Yes, sir. So <clears throat> this one other uh, interpretation of this first verse, this Mishkan, 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 is that it, it's referring, the first one's referring to the temple above, and the second one is referring to the temple here, which also is perfectly aligned with Hebrews 8 and 9. Absolutely. Hebrews 8 and 9 mm -hmm. goes to great lengths to describe the heavenly tabernacle and the heavenly priesthood and everything that happens there. Being different. Uh, being different. Uh, it's different, it's separate, but yet the one here is a copy of right. that one. It's a, it's, a, it's, a mirror, it's a mirror uh reflection of the of that one above and and so to me you know it, it it's like if you you can't you know i mean obviously uh, we don't know for sure who wrote the book of hebrews but mm. um but you, Other than you can't <laughs> but you can't really if you don't understand some of these kind of torah based concepts yeah. You can't really. It's hard to really understand that when you're trying to read it in a vacuum. Absolutely. Because yeah. you can right. go to seminary, but that won't help you. Right. Well, that probably makes it worse. And, and, even, <laughs> and even to this day, even to this day in Judaism, there's there's a controversy over should we build, should we physically build the tabernacle and take it upon ourselves right. to build it, or there's many in Orthodox Judaism who are of the opinion no. The, the temple is going to come down out of heaven. Mashiach is going to bring down the temple. 
and we we can't do anything until Messiah gets here. And there's a big there's a big debate, right? You know, in, in Judaism about this. We have groups like you know the Temple Institute and uh, the Temple Mount Faithful and other groups like that who are advocating, no, we've got to take action. We've got to build, start building the temple, and then Messiah will come. Mm-hmm. Although I think last week's portion actually, I think, gives us the clues as to what the order of activities will be. But that's, that was last week's class. But anyway, that, so that temple above, that Mishkan above and Mishkan below thing, you know, absolutely, it's a, it's, a, it's really into Hebrew. I think Hebrew is actually sheds the most light absolutely. on that Jewish idea. Right, and I think the irony, of course, is in reading it correctly, as you've been saying, because if you don't, then you end up at the opposite angle, um, which is unfortunate. Yes, sir? And kind of, you know, practically speaking, there's just so many little details about that leads up to the, the eventual filling of the tabernacle. And when you kind of relate it to being people, too, thinking like being filled with, with Hashem's presence as believers, it's so interesting to like take this portion and kind of think through it practically. Like every Every little thing, like when they would wash their hands, the type of clothing that they would wear, the type of hmm. food that they would eat, like every every aspect mm-hmm. of their life, every aspect of the tabernacle leading up to it being filled was thought through in very, very careful detail. Hmm. And it's just like, I think that's really cool because knowing a lot of righteous men, I, I see in their lives that they're, it's, it's the exact same way. I mean, they're very careful with the amount of money that they spend. Everything's accounted for. They're very careful about what they wear. They're very careful about you know, their cleanliness. I mean, just all these different things you can see reflected in the lives of, like, righteous people. So it's, it's a cool picture of that as well. Hmm, very intentional. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the heaven, tabernacle above and tabernacle below. Um, while Hebrews is a fine passage to read this morning, personally, I would have taken this to the book of Revelation because this particular passage um, links up with a specific verse in uh, Revel- our passage in Revelation. Revelation chapter 15, verses 5 through 8. It says, After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, which should remind you of the the Aaronic garments for Yom Kippur, right? Mm -hmm. And girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Once the imagery we get there, the same thing is the temple above is filled with the presence of God to the point where even the angels cannot approach, um, which is what we get at the end of this particular portion. Uh, if you go, I'm going to take us past the beginning of the portion, a little bit before that. Um, Rabbi David Foreman has an amazing, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, you have to watch the video, but has an amazing video on uh, how the entire back half of the book of Exodus is the same message. And you might not realize that, but basically the last like 15 chapters of Exodus um, are all one enormous um, poetry. And chiastic poetry, if we talk about this a lot, the idea that like the first and the last thing parallel, the second to last and the third, second to la- uh, the, and the second thing parallel, and so on and so forth, you get these little you know, patterns, and then the thing in the middle is what's most important, right? Well, in this particular one, the, if you look at the story, then you'd, be probably, you'd probably recognize some of this as you've been reading it. The beginning, we talked about uh, after the, the Sinai and the Ten Commandments and all that stuff, we ended up with this discussion of the tabernacle. Then there was this sort of interesting little verse there about Shabbat. Like, you know, here's the tabernacle, keep Shabbat. Okay? Then we have the whole incident with the golden calf and all the mess with that, and then the atonement and the recovery and all that stuff. And then the next topic we get back into is keep Shabbat. And then the following topic is, and here's all the tabernacle stuff that you're supposed to do. 
So um, Rabbi Foreman points out, okay, this is, this is a good parallel. We've got tabernacle and tabernacle, Shabbat and Shabbat, golden calf and atonements in the center, right? What he said was interesting, though, is that if you look at the individual pieces and start breaking down the sections, they even start to parallel in weird ways, as well as the things that happen like, directly before and after them. Again, you need to watch the video to get the whole effect. But the one thing he talked about was right before the discussion of the tabernacle, we get this Sinai experience, and there's smoke, and there's fire, and it's like crazy. Like God's presence is there in an intense way, and the people are absolutely terrified. And Moses goes into it, interestingly enough. Well, then, if you come to the very end of the portion, where we're just at the end of Exodus 40, which got paralleled in Revelation there, we have smoke and we have fire, and yet uh, Moses is not able to come in. So the intensity of God's presence has actually been ramped up. Um, Rabbi Foreman, I, I kind of agree with Rabbi Foreman on this one. Some of the other sages say, well, no, 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 it's, not so much, it's like it's the same presence of God, but, but Moses wasn't invited in, so therefore he couldn't enter. But I think, I, like, I agree with Rabbi David Foreman that he was unable to. Right. The presence of God was so intense. So it actually had escalated. Think about Sinai. Sinai is like, this is God on the mountain speaking to the people. This is huge. But the tabernacle was actually a bigger deal. It was a more intense expression of God's presence than it had been on Sinai. But then here's the beauty, and this is one thing that Rabbi Foreman, I love what he tied into this, that the, the cloud and the fire on Sinai gets repeated with the tabernacle, but the cloud and the fire with the tabernacle is about keeping the people close. The cloud and the fire on Sinai scared the people away. That was about, I mean, the people experienced that, and they're like, okay, that was great. We're here for God. Whoa, that's amazing. But we never want to hear from God again. That was terrifying. We're going to die. This was not okay. But at the end of this, of this parsha, it says that they would wait for the cloud to move. When the cloud stayed, they stayed. When the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud was on the tabernacle by day and the fire by night, this cloud and fire, the same imagery we got from Sinai, has now been about relationship. It's about connection. Instead of being like, God is holy and you're not, now all of a sudden, because of the tabernacle that God has instituted, it's now about the intertwining of them two. Now you stay close to God. You see the fire by night. It lights up your world. You follow the cloud during the day. It provides shade from the heat. Now all of a sudden it's about relationship. And it's interesting that if you think about it, what is in between? And this is something I, I mean, this is not, Rabbi Foreman doesn't go as much into this, but this idea, what's in between the golden calf and the atonement? What do we get when we read that Midrash earlier? What's the story of creation? God is with man. Man messes up really badly. God's presence leaves. End of the story. God fixes the problem through atonement. God reinstitutes in a greater degree, more so than we'd ever had before, his relationship with us. What do we see with Sinai? Here's God's presence on the mountain, close to us, but not as close. We mess up really bad. God fixes the problem. God dwells with us in a degree unlike anything that's ever happened before. This is exactly parallel to the, to the story of history. And the only, in, the, in the middle is the sin of the golden calf, which is the worst sin that the people of Israel have done, which parallels us in the garden. We messed up. We broke it. God fixes it. And now the relationship with God is actually even better in the end, in the in the long about, than it was in the garden. Yes, sir. Uh, I think the other the other context that's important here is uh, just to help us understand the significance is Hashem came down on the mountain, as you just pointed out. Where are they building this tabernacle? They're still encamped at the foot of Sinai. Right. Okay. The 
the presence of Hashem was, was still on the mountain that entire year. The cloud of Hashem still rested on the mountain, according to Zal. So they've been living under the hoopah, right? Living under the cloud, as it were, and God's presence has been on the mountain the entire time, right? And yet when they, it, because now we're almost, in fact, you know, we, we finished the tabernacle, we erect it, we anoint it on Nisan 1, right? right? It's almost exactly a Which year. Is almost exactly a year. Uh, we're, we're 14 days away from being the anniversary of leaving Mitzrayim, mm-hmm. right? Um, so the whole time we're building this tabernacle, we're still, Hashem is, the presence of Hashem is still above us on the mountain. When we finish the tabernacle, his presence is no longer above us. His presence comes all the way down and stands before us, as it were. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it comes mm-hmm. down into the tabernacle all the way down. Right? And that is significant because it's not like it's not like the presence of God was was not hadn't been there the whole time. But Hashem is making this very important statement by coming off the mountain, which is still above them, mm-hmm. and coming all the way down to their level mm-hmm. and filling the tabernacle in, you know, in, in before them, right? So it's, it's, a, it's, a, very, it's a very significant you know, uh, idea. Absolutely. Question, this pattern that you're talking about, mm-hmm. it's getting um, more intense. Like, is it going to continue to be patterns like that and to mm-hmm. more intense? Like, how much more Absolutely. is the next one in yes. step? Yeah. I mean, is that, I don't know, I think that, I, I think to some degree that, like, um, it says that the, that happens to the fathers is pretends to the children. The idea being that, like, God, history tends to repeat itself. This is a Jewish tradition as well as a um, secular one. And the idea is that, yeah, I think it, but I also think that it does tend to come in, in greater waves, which is why you see. You know, Moshe is the, the picture of Messiah. He's the first Messiah, so to speak. Yeshua is a greater version, even though, I mean, they're obviously they're different, fundamentally different, but at the same time, conceptually the same. And then, but in, in the same way, the garden is beautiful, but Olam Haba will be even better. But at the same time, in the middle, yeah, you're right. I think the negatives get, get more intense as well. It gets scarier. But I think that it ultimately boils down to, um, I mean, at the end, that doesn't even really matter, because, like, the goal is always the end. Like, that's one thing that says, like, in Revelation, it says that it, those who endure, right? In other words, it, it's going to take endurance, but you're, you're aiming for a goal. You're always aiming for the goal. The goal was always what you were looking for, so what, how you get there is less important than when you get there. Um, and it'll be even sweeter by the time you arrive. I want to just talk a little bit about the portion itself before we finish. Um, I know it's not very long. And it's, it's, it, it repeats a lot. We read before, so it's little pieces here and there. But one of the things that stood out to me this time, I thought was fascinating, uh, in verse chapter 21, it says that the, they talk about the reckonings of the tabernacle. All the, the pieces are brought together, right? And it says that they were reckoned at Moshe's bidding. The labor of the Levites was under the authority of Itamar, son of Aaron the Cohen. Well, according to tradition, um, I know I know we're actually not running late, but I'm just saying, like, this week we could, we could run short if we wanted to. Um, the, uh, the, what I thought was interesting in verse chapter 21 is it talks about that it was under the authority of Itamar. 
And I hope that you, if you pay attention to the families at this stage, that something should stand out there. Your, your radar should pop up because Itamar's not the guy that I would have picked to head the whole thing up. I would have picked Aaron. Aaron's still here. In fact, if the rest of the stuff is done by Moshe's bidding, then it makes a lot of sense that who's helping setting up all the work? It would be Aaron. He would be the one who'd be heading up that. I mean, who else do you pick but the vice president to take care of you know, the number two job? But they specifically mentioned Itamar, and Itamar's not even the oldest son in this story. Itamar's down the chain. The oldest sons, unfortunately, don't make it through the next book. But the point is that um, Itamar is down the chain. Now, what's cool about this is it gives me an opportunity. Um, it's great. At the start of my, uh, the discussion today, we got to talk about how great my dad is. Now I can talk about my father-in-law. I really respect the fact that he has repeatedly pulled the young men into the, um, into the leadership of this group. I mean, I'm sitting here because he was okay with me taking over his job. Um, and he did a great job at it. And I'm sure that uh, there are times he misses it and other times he's probably very grateful that I'm doing it instead of him. But the point is that um, that's what I think this is about. Aaron and Moshe are more than just about getting it done right. They also want to make sure it's done right later. Because it can't just be done right now. So Itamar is the guy they pick. They don't pick Nadab or Abihu, who are the older ones. Pretty handy. Good thing they didn't. <laughs> investing in the right, investing in the right person, the next generation is important too. You don't want to waste that investment. But the point is, though, that they reached out into the future. They took the next generation. When I was a very young man, unbelievably small, looking back at myself now, um, my dad, for some ridiculous reason, thought that I was old enough to lead his Sunday school class full of people who were mostly twice my age. Um, because he was, he, was he was supposed to be working, and then, amazingly enough, he managed to sit through the whole thing. But, uh, <laughs> so he, um, but he, I remember, I still remember, it was actually, it was a red letter day for me, because my dad took me to lunch, just the two of us, it was a big deal. If you've ever grown up with, with siblings, um, you know it's important when your parents spend one-on-one -on -one time with you. So he took me out to lunch, we talked, we planned the lesson out, and I got a chance to lead the Sunday school class. And... Um, that is investing in the future. And I think, I mean, all the men here have done some degree of that, but I think that's the idea. You want to reach out. It's not enough to simply teach, but you need to also give authority to the young people to give them opportunity. And I think they did that with Itamar, and I think that it pays off in the end. Itamar, unlike Nadev and Abihu, turns out just fine. And he and his other brother, Elazar, end up being the tag team for the priesthood for you know a long time, especially as Aaron dies. So it's a big deal there. Um, yes, sir. Well, I mean, along the same lines, we have Betzalel and uh, Ohaliah, and these were not chosen because of a reach into the future. These were chosen for ways, reasons we don't quite understand, although there is a relationship issue there as well. But uh, it reminds me of the, of the constant reference to a temple not made with human hands, uh, that you that you carve this altar from, or that you use it, that you create this altar from stones that have not been human. cut by human hands. Mm -hmm. And here now we see two men who are artisans, actually probably not men. Uh, Betzalel's probably about 13 or 14. Mm -hmm. He's actually- He's technically a man. He's, yes, he is def definitely a man, but in that regard, but he's actually, he's not who you would pick. Right. Uh, he's obviously very, very talented, but that's not what's going on. There's something else, and it tells us that the Spirit of God rested upon them, and it was from that inspiration. So, which sounds like to, Joseph and Daniel and others. But, but to me, this is where this is where it gets unique. Yes, it is true that this tabernacle was constructed by human hands in a technical sense, 
But in a, but in a, in a, even a, even slightly altered from that is these guys didn't do it. We were talking this morning. It's impossible to fashion a menorah from one piece of gold when you start talking about each one of those, each one of those branches have, has almond flowers or almond uh, uh, blossoms. petals, blossoms. I'm sorry, that's <laughs> impossible from one piece of gold. Uh, it's just literally impossible. So we know that this tabernacle, although, desert, although right? may have been constructed from human hands from one angle, from another angle, it wasn't. Because, well, we know, I mean, well, one, we know that the even if it was built by human hands, the architect was God. Absolutely. Right. Right. The, the plans, plans, the plans, the plans were God. Were not, not and, uh, according to tradition, to, to my dad's point in this one, tradition holds that even though it was the work was done, quote unquote, by these men. Uh, God taught Bezalel the the secret mysteries of the universe, specifically the secret mysteries of the Hebrew language, which is how God created the universe oh, created the from God the beginning. Because remember, remember that was the whole thing. Is the uh, if you look at the very beginning of the of the passage, the very very beginning of Genesis starts with the Beit Bereshit, and the Beit uh, is almost like this picture of like is like the inside of the mouth. Like out of this, and it's oversized in the text. So it's like out of a mouth basically is coming all of creation because God spoke it all into existence. So tradition holds that um, uh, Bezalel was taught by God this capacity to essentially manipulate the Aleph Bet to, that's right, to create, create things. things. Miraculous creation. Right. Another, another interpretation of that, of Genesis 1 1, by the way, is, you know, Bereshit Bara Elohim Et. Et Aleph Tav, which is the first and last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, so it's it, it's it, it it's representative of, of the entire alphabet. So in the beginning, God created the Et, the alphabet, from which then everything comes, right? Absolutely. So that's another another interpretation of that. Another cool thing as we're going through this passage, um, I think it's interesting to me that uh, they list out all the different things that they make. Yeah, I hope that you're paying attention to what some of these things are. We talk about all this silver, right? And one of the things that they, they point out is they counted each becca for a head. Well, if you have been reading the portions, you should remember that these were the half shekel for each person. Well, this half shekel for each person, what's it used for? It's used to build the sockets. Now, the sockets are not like, not like that, not like that kind of socket, but same concept, right? It's a little hole, put something else into it, keeps it stable. But instead of being in the wall, they were on the, the ground. So they were essentially used as supports for all of the pillars to keep them up, right? Connector pieces. Connector pieces, right. But they're the, they're the base, the base. So in actuality, when, they, when Judaism talks about this idea of the half shekel uh, representing each person's inherent offering to God, because they're all even, right? Rich and the poor all get the same. Um, they say that that formed the base of the tabernacle. It's the foundation. The rest of the tabernacle is built by each man's individual gift. But God, and those are different. God gives different things to different people. But at the core level, the foundation of what the God's dwelling among man is set by this inherent, even, equal uh, offering that we all give, or all have the capacity to give. So um, I thought that was cool. This, uh, they specifically looked at what, not only what it was, but what it was used for in, in the tabernacle itself. Um, also, as we're going through the portion, they, uh, he's got 
all of these different things that they make, all the different clothes and garments, and this attaches to this, and this does this, and this is all these different pieces. They make the whole thing, um, and they bring it to Moshe. I think it's interesting. It's this first off that said that they, they made it all, and then they brought it to Moshe, uh, which I thought was kind of I thought that was interesting. Quality they, control. Yeah, they, they're kind of this repeat, you know, right? So they made the whole thing, and then they specifically, it actually goes through, and it talks about them bringing it. It wasn't just that, like, it lists, and they made all this stuff, and they brought it, it encompassing all that we just got done listing out to Moshe. No, instead it says they did all of this stuff, and then they list out one by one by one, like, every single category of thing that they brought to Moshe, which I think, again, goes back to this whole idea. If you've been reading this passage, and you see this also in uh, some of the other portions, especially about Solomon and his temple, God goes into incredible amounts of detail. I mean, think about the fact that some of the most important mitzvot in all of Scripture get, like, a verse. And God goes into enormous amounts of detail. I think it's also cool because God's also honoring the people who did this. This is not only a, a, a description, a detailed blueprint, print, as it were. It's also an, an, a, an ongoing testimony to these people. God's saying, like, you know, it's almost like he's even highlighting, like, even the bringing of the stuff was important. It wasn't just that they offered themselves. They brought things, too. Um, uh, Gregory had found a really interesting uh, uh, video from, uh, I think it was like a Chabad's website about uh, charity. And um, if you want to watch the whole thing, it's like 30 minutes long. It's awesome, really good. Um, uh, talk to him, he's got the link. They, um, one of the things they mentioned is that uh, all of the other of its vote are each connected to like a piece of you, basically. You can read the Torah, that's your mouth, you know. You can, you can do the right, you can think about Torah, you can... You can, you know, give somebody a hug, you know, whatever, but it's all just like a piece of you. It's not the whole thing. But how charity is different because charity is literally giving up all of you because what it, what it comes from is the money you earned. It took your sweat, took your tears, took your mind, took your mouth, it took all of your senses. It literally took your entire being to earn this money. And this money you're now giving away. So you're literally you taking all of you and giving it away to somebody else in an act of righteousness before God. Um, and I think you see that, and, so, and God honors that specifically because it is a gift from your whole being. And I think it's so you get here. It's like it wasn't just that they made the offering, but even this they're, they're carrying it over to Moses gets God's attention. Because it's like, you know what? You physically did something for me, and I will honor that. Yes, sir. Your statement about you know giving money is like giving of your whole self, your essence. And uh, for those of you who were able to uh, attend the meeting we had with Ariel Kanawa, he made he made this point that uh, another word, so the modern word for money in Hebrew is kesef, but um, but there's another word. Uh, in Hebrew for money, which is dam, which is also blood. Mm -hmm. uh, because when you give money, charity, it's, I mean, it's, you're giving, that you're giving some, you're some of your own life, as it were. You're giving, it's like you're giving blood in the sense that it took your entire being to earn that, and you're, you're, you're kind of giving, giving, it, uh, giving it up. So, Anyway, that was kind of a yeah, reminded no, me of that. His that's exactly true. I think that's a good point. Yes, sir. Well, you, you mentioned that they brought the stuff to, to Moshe, and this this gives us some more miraculous uh, insights into the construction of the tabernacle. 
because Moshe held up, Moshe erected tabernacles. The people did not build the tabernacle. Uh, even as brilliant as Betzalel was and Oliab, they didn't build the tabernacle. They built the pieces. Right. The tabernacle was 100% constructed, although it was miraculous because Moshe held up the pillars for a week. <laughs> I mean, Moshe constructed the tabernacle from the pieces by himself. That's pretty remarkable. If you're put together a child's toy by yourself, that is hard. But, so, but building a tabernacle, something so, else. But, you know, and, and, and you know, the sages talk about you know Moshe's supernatural strength or whatever else, and I, I think that misses the whole point. This is a miracle. It is. That Moshe constructed the tabernacle by himself. And I think it's instructive to how the final temple will come about. Right. Because last week's portion, Vayachel, right, is instructive for us about when Messiah returns, what will happen first. Well, Vayachel, he'll assemble all the lost sheep of of God's people. He'll then reinstitute Shabbat. Okay. And then he'll say, let's build the temple. So, and, and I think it will be the people constructing the pieces, pieces. but it'll be Mashiach who puts it all assemb- together. Assembles so it. will Absolutely. the people build the, tab- the temple or will Mashiach? The answer is yes. Exactly. Um, and actually, and it's it's probably the same tabernacle that we see here. And that's another mir- miracle. We see this same tabernacle 500 years later still around. That's Nothing true. is around from 500 years ago that's not made out of stone. <laughs> that's true. I mean, this is not stone. This is fabric and wood. And it sticks around for 500 years. That's true. And then it doesn't just disappear. Tradition holds, and, and it's probably got good basis. It's hidden away by Jeremiah. So it's not gone. It's still there somewhere. Somewhere. Out there. Mine is just real quick. Uh, like you were talking about bringing the offering. It, it was completely free will. It wasn't like they were intimidated to bring an offering. Uh, they weren't pressured to do it. Uh, they brought it of their own free will. And a lot of this gold and silver and things like that came from the ladies. Mm-hmm. You know? From the from their jewelry. And the really smart you ones know? knew how to weave goat hair. Which apparently yeah, it's really yeah. difficult. Yeah, I mean, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was free, we're freely. It's not high and you're giving from your own being from your heart. Right. Uh, you're making a free will decision to help one. You know? Right. And nobody had to force you to do it. Right, exactly. And that's what God wants even from charity. As yeah. Paul Paul makes that comment, he gives charity with cheerfulness, right? Yeah. yeah. Greg and Greg. Let, let, let that Greg go first. Okay, yes, sir. Oh, uh, so there was just an interesting thing. As we are looking forward to the return of Messiah Yeshua, there was an interesting uh, essay by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs that pointed out in the end here, it mentions two different times that the cloud... And then it mentions like these these ideas of journeys, mm-hmm. and there was a bit of an interesting thing because one in one place it's like the cloud rested, but then on the, in another place it's like but then the cloud like left first, and then they had to follow the cloud. And so he was pointing out like how do we reconcile this? Like is it there on the journey or is it there in the encampment? And then Rashi actually points out that the word um, for journeys is sometimes very similar to the word for encampment, which is Nasah. And so his, his point was, this is exactly like the story of our lives, that like even encampments are just meant to be, they're just stops on these journeys. And mm-hmm. so they're not even seen necessarily as encampments. Mm-hmm. So his point was this discrepancy in the, in the verses here, Rashi kind of 
smooths it out by saying, well, this is it's the exact same thing. Because even when we're in camp, we're just preparing for the next journey. So everything's all leading up towards like the, the final destination. Mm. And that's just kind of cool thinking about how Yeshua responded when he was talking about how the Son of Man has no place to lay his head and how it's so hard to follow him because there's just constant movement. You can't really rest while you're here. It's all in preparation mm. for his return. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, we get the idea of the body of Messiah from from Paul, mm-hmm. and like it, literally being um, the yeah, the expressions of, of God, yeah. right? But being the expressions of God in this world, I mean, I think that's also a concept that's in Scripture that we are um, God uses us to do His work a lot of times. In a sense, yeah, mm-hmm. conceptually. Mm-hmm. So, you made a statement a minute ago about the women who were able to weave goat hair. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to last, last week's portion for just a minute, um, it says explicitly that the women were the ones that that were the master weavers that wove the, the fabric for the curtains and. and, and well, what's interesting is there's actually in in the Mishnah tractate Shekalim, there's a there's some discussion about this, and it says that uh, in in the commentary to the Mishnah, uh, if you if you go pull like the Yad Abraham version, it's probably in other versions as well, but uh, it says that. Um, there were specifically 82 women that were that were selected to do this work, and in one of the commentaries it says the 82 women were specifically virgins. Hmm. Okay. Now that's kind of interesting because there we do there is an old, very old church, early church tradition that Miriam, that Mary was a, a, a very uh, a talented weaver. In fact, huh. there's, some, uh, there's some in some of the older kind of Catholic paintings and stuff, you'll see Mary holding this, like this thing of purple cloth, okay. which is hinting back to this tradition. The tradition was found in a writing, in an in a early writing from Origen, where there was this, there was tradition that Mary was this weaver who was one of the virgins that was used to weave curtains when Herod kind of redid the whole temple complex. Huh. Okay. Wait, so let me get it straight. Mashiach's earthly father was a carpenter, which kind of reminds me of all the work we're doing here involving wood and gold and all that kind of stuff. And his mom was a weaver. If, if she gave up, you know, copper mirrors for the labor, I mean, this is just over the top. Okay, but, but now, so I don't know, I don't know That's if, cool, if I really this like tradition that. is true or not, but let's just presuppose that it is for a moment, okay? So what you have is you have the Torah saying women did this, you have the Mishnah saying it was 82 virgin women, you have a writing, an early writing from Origen that records a, a tradition that Miriam was a master weaver and that she was one of these 82 that that helped you know uh weave the curtains and the partitions that were 
used in the in Herod's second temple when he kind of renovated it all. Um, so what's interesting about that is there's also a verse in, in Tehillim, I forget the address off the top of my head, but it, it's talking about referring, it's, it's prophetically referring to Messiah, it's talking about you have woven me in the womb, mm -hmm. right? And so here we have Miriam, who's, who's picked by God to bring forth, to, to bring forth Mashiach, right, to carry Mashiach in her womb, to weave him in the womb, as it were, according to the psalmist. Right. And she is, in fact, a master weaver, That's cool. right? So this, this, this parallel could get even more interesting because now, if you fast forward to, you know, when Mashiach is hanging on the cross, right, what happens when he finally, when his spirit finally leaves him, right? Right before he, right before he dies, he says it's finished. By the way, Moshe, at the end of this portion, says it's finished with respect to the tabernacle. Uh, That's but, cool. Uh, well, it is cool because Messiah was a tabernacle for Hashem. Right as it were, right? There's that metaphor that's clear, clearly talked about in the, in the Apostolic Writings. Um, but when he passes, what happens? The curtain oh, yeah. is torn. Now, this is just complete speculation, so I'm not saying this is true at all. I don't even know if the tradition that Miriam was, in fact, a weaver is true. But, but wouldn't it be kind of cool that if, in fact, the... The, the mother of Messiah, who was this master weaver, who wove the Messiah in her womb, as it were, according to the psalmist, right? At the time his, at the time he passes, at the time his body is broken, right? Because what is the body with respect to Messiah? It's the veil covering his, containing, right? He's, his body in this right. earth is the vessel containing Right. The the real, the real glory of God, right? The right. So when his body is broken, rent as it were, this curtain, according to the according to the account, that's hanging in the tabernacle, is also rent mysteriously at the same time. Would it could it be that that's the same yeah, curtain that, that Miriam actually had woven for Herod's temple? Whoa. Kind of, yeah, I mean, that's, that's again, cool. It, you can't, you could never say that that's actually factual, but yeah. it's kind of it's fun it's to play plausible. with. That's, it's yeah, kind of I can see plausible. that. For your consideration. For your consideration. <laughs> so when we talk about Moses putting the, putting the tabernacle together, uh, like tradition holds, yeah. of course, that Moses does it by himself, which is incredible. Also, I think if you if you read through this, it's very weird the way that he puts it together. We're in chapter forty now. Um, again, when we get towards the end here. Um, Moshe actually puts the pieces together and he starts by putting up the tent and then he fills the tent. What's odd about this portion in this order, so to speak, of the, um, the arrangement is, I don't know about you guys, but if we're building houses today, normally we start with the frame, build the house, and then we put the pieces on the inside. No need to put the toilet in until you have the walls up, you know, basically is the idea. Um, What's weird about this particular story is that Moses puts up the, 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 the tabernacle base, but the, the outer rim is left undone. The door is left undone. 
And then he goes in and he puts the pieces of furniture in. And then it goes beyond that. It says that he goes in and he puts the bread on the, the, uh, the, the table of showbread. He goes in, lights the menorah, and it's like, whoa, 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 there's a, there's a door. Don't we even put the door up first? Like, why are we doing all this stuff on the inside? People can see. But what's cool is, I think there's a lesson to be learned from this. If you look at the order, it doesn't even make geographical sense. Because if you go into the Holy of Holies and put the, the Ark of the Covenant there and you put up the veil, the next most logical piece of furniture to put in the room is the altar of incense, which is right in front of the veil. But that's not actually what happens. Instead, Moshe intentionally goes over here to put up the uh, table of showbread. Then he walks all the way across the tabernacle to put up the menorah. Then he comes back to the middle to put in the, the altar of incense. Now, here's why I think this is important. Because what we're, what the lesson I think we're learning from this is what, is, what in a sense are these things representing? The, ta the, the table of showbread represents food. I'm oh, sorry, menorah and the table of showbread, excuse me, yes. Yeah. So on the south, southern end, you got the, the menorah. On the northern end, you got the table of showbread. The question is, what do they represent? The showbread represents food. God doesn't need food. This bread was not for God, even though it was God's bread, so to speak. He didn't eat this bread, and it wasn't offered an offering, at least not the, the final loaves. So this is about feeding people. The light of the menorah is, again, kindled for God, so to speak, but it's really not for God. God doesn't need light to see. This light is in the tabernacle from people, really. The only object of physical, uh, the physical object in the, in the holy place that's really only for God is the altar of incense. But that's the last thing that Moses puts in. So I think the lesson we can learn from this is the, uh, the principle of like hospitality. What is, when God has guests in his home, so to speak, the, the priesthood and whatnot, right? Who is he taking care of first? He starts by taking care of the people who are going to be in the home, and then he worries about himself. Oh, that was such a cool picture. God here is, even in the midst of creating a, a, a carve-out of this universe that he can dwell in so that people can interact with him, his top, almost like the top priority is still the people. He's still working for us. He's still doing, he's, he's so servant-minded even as the God of the universe that the first thing he thinks about is bread to eat and light to see. And then we worry about the altar of, of incense. But Joshua, you know what that just reminded me of? How you said earlier about how, like that poetry and, and this and the center of that part. Right, right, right. Right, yeah, that's true. You get the parallels. We Humans need these things. This is about God. This was more about the point. But see, the, the thing I think is so cool about this picture, though, is I think it just reminds me of, like, I mean, having had guests in my home and things, I think it's very easy sometimes for hospitality to be all about you. You know, it's like, I'm one of these people in my home, so I'm already putting myself out. So after that, it's like, I'm, I'm almost like hands off. But look at Moshe, and Moshe is like, he is full speed ahead, like, all the time. He had people over all the time, and he's serving them, even when he's in pain. And he has that picture of constantly reaching out to the people that he's serving to the point of always going above and beyond, always putting them first. And I think we seem to see that from God himself. And it's like, well, if God does it, then I mean, we have to too. By the way, another quick picture to Moshe. Tradition holds that Moshe's tent was always open. I think it's kind of cool that they didn't put up the cover until everything else was inside, uh, I mean, the, the doorway. And then if you notice in the, the we talked about this at um, the Gardeners last week, the idea that the doorway was not flush with the wall. So in a sense, the tabernacle territory was always open, sort of like Abraham's tent. Yes, sir. And then I got the other Greg. To just take the step, the hospitality thing a step further, Rambam is kind of famous for 
saying in Bad per for the Perplexed that the incense, one of the reasons for it was actually to mask the smell of all of the sacrifices. Okay. It was basically like a slaughterhouse. Right. And it made it so much more pleasant for everyone around. And uh, the reason that's kind of a big deal because some of the sages were like, surely like it wouldn't be such a small reason like that for that. But that was just one theory that he had put out there. That's cool. Uh, that's a good one. <laughs> no, but also you think the picture is, um, I mean, also the, the bread represents food, it also represents livelihood, and the lamp, as according to tradition, represents wisdom. And it's almost like, again, both of those things are like necessary in the service of God. God does, God is, uh, does provide for us, but in a sense, like, it's difficult to serve God if, you don't, if you're not working and you're not creating a livelihood. And it's difficult to, to serve God if you don't have wisdom and you haven't studied the scriptures and really thought about them and digested them and worked on them. So the, the, uh, this, if you think about it, this is almost a picture of service, too, to God, because the altar of incense is oftentimes what we want to get to. We want to get to that. That's what Native and Abba would get in trouble with, right? It's the incense. It's like, I want to get to that like, really spiritual, mystical, like, cool connection with God, and we're going to do this offering, and it's going to be really amazing. It's going to smell great. And it's this picture of prayer, and it's all this, like, you know, it's all beyond us, right? But really what God wants us to start with is the things that sort of make the most sense to us. It's like you take care of providing for yourself so that you can then be generous and provide to others. And you take care of studying and learning about the things that I taught you so you can understand, you can see, literally, what's going on in here. And then we'll get to the cool mystical stuff. Save the mystical stuff for last, although we love the mystical stuff. So make sure you work on these so we can get to that one. But, but I think your priority there is important because when we think about ministering to other people, right, the, the person who's hungry and homeless could care less about gamacha right. or right. anything else. Absolutely right. Because they're hungry. Yeah, exactly. So and you said the same thing about people that were eating. Absolutely. So it's it's instructive for us because it is saying, look, it's hard to be spiritual if your physical needs are not met. Right. Right. Because our because our survival instincts kick in and the only thing we're going to focus on is our physical needs. Well, and in Perkei Avot, talk about this idea that like Torah without work is not good. Work without Torah is also not good. But you need to have uh, you need to have both of them to have a successful life. Yeah, and, and again, to get to that picture, if you really want to get to service of God, you want to get to the you want to be able to do the parts that are all about God. You got to take care of the other things first. Yes, sir. Well, back to the back to the incense because the incense actually, if you look at where it's used and when it's used, uh, the incense that's being used is extremely flammable. Just frankincense sack. Uh, basically, this is some this is some potent stuff and a lot of smoke. So incense, in the, if you watch throughout the Torah where it's used, it's providing a cover, and it actually is called a cover mm -hmm. for the priests while they're serving in the temple. Putting it on the incense fills the whole place, and notice it's also going in the in the incense sensor that goes into the to the holy right. holies. On, on Yom Kippur as well, it's to it's to it's to conceal, it's to cloak those who are working, but also it conceals God because the whole place fills with smoke. So that the point is, we have the uh, we have the uh, menorah serving as providing light. The incense essentially diffuses the light, and all that's seen is not seven individual lamps, but seven eyes. Right. So the incense fills the entire tabernacle, the entire temple as a protection for those that are there serving. So it's true, providing the food and the illumination, 
uh, is God's pr priority for his servants, but in regard, and also the protection while they're in his presence that they're not consumed because they're covered with incense. Right. The same thing is on your school. When the high priest goes in behind the veil, he's got Fills the incense with him, and he makes it clear. God makes it clear. He will be covered and protected mm -hmm. by that cloud. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says that the altar of incense uh, and this is why, one reason why it's just so, oftentimes so confusing. If you look at some Christian theologians actually place the incense, the altar of incense, inside the, the veil because they read Hebrews and go, that's what it says. And, and, and others say, no, no, you see, Hebrews was written by people that didn't know anything about the tabernacle. And the, and the fact is that the incense is about the Holy of Holies. That's what its purpose was. It was to protect those while in that most in holy place but it also served as protection outside the veil as well. Sure. As well. Mm. This is all very true. I like this. It's good. Um, one of the things you mentioned earlier, Greg, about the cloud, and getting towards the end, um, uh, final comments, although people want to throw something out. I'm, I'm not wrapping up yet. So I'm just getting my final comment. Um, in the uh, last little section there, verses 36 to the end, Talks with the cloud raising and lowering, and I have to say, if I think about it, if you think about it, this is an incredibly bizarre um, divergence from the story. Um, it's almost sort of like if you've ever watched a TV show and you get to that really exciting episode, so and so's in a coma, and you're wondering, are they going to die? Are they going to live? They... And then the next episode is this is an entire episode. It's a dream sequence of the guy in the coma, and you're like, wait a minute, but what happens to the guy in the coma? You're wasting an entire episode on nothing. I want to know what's happening in the story. And it almost feels that way here because in the middle of this, the cloud fills the, the, the tabernacle and Moses can't go in. And you're thinking, and it's like, you know, to be continued. That this, it, it, it worked, but it didn't work. We did all this work. We got God in the middle of us. And oh my goodness, now not even Moses can go in. The story is all confused. And if you're reading this in like, in like a novel, it's almost like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And the, and the first chapters of Leviticus are about the sacrifices and the offerings, which go back again to this idea of like how we get in, right? But then, so you get to the end of this, of this chapter, and you're going, what's going to happen? Oh, and by the way, for the rest of the story, which we're not going to talk about right now, when the cloud would get up, we would go, wait, 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 but what happens to the tabernacle? Because that's, that's what you're feeling. But I think, this is, I think this is here on purpose. Because what was the tabernacle's point? The tabernacle's point was God dwelling among us. That's what we've gotten to symbolically. Well, what is this entire little last section about? It's about God dwelling among us. But it's not about just the wilderness journeys. And I think that that's, in my opinion, this is a story. This is the rest of the people of Israel's existence in these three verses. When the cloud was raised up from upon the tabernacle, the children of Israel would embark on all their journeys. What does that sound like? When did the cloud leave the, tab the temple? Right about the time of the Babylonian exile. So what's the imagery we have here? When did the people get dispersed to the four winds? Right after God destroyed the temple, right? The Romans destroyed the temple, and then the Romans dispersed into the four winds. So what happens? The cloud of God, so to speak, moves, and then the people journey. And when a cloud would rest, the people would rest. And then what it says, it says that they, if the cloud did not raise up, they would not embark until the day rose up. For the cloud of Adonai would be on the tabernacle by day, and fire would be on it at night. What, what does that remind you of? I think about it symbolically. Let's step away from the literal interpretation thing, but symbolically. The cloud was on it by day. Well, when was the cloud there? The cloud was like, those were like the pinnacle moments, right? 
Those were the highest points. We had the first temple, King David and Solomon, and Israel is like the best they ever were. Then the second temple gets built, and it's not as hot, you know, theoretically, but the temple itself was glorious, and Gentiles came from all over the planet to come worship the God of Israel. Both of those times were like by day. The cloud, the cloud was there by day. But what is the night? And the fire is when God was visible, when you could see God, but it wasn't the same visibility, right? You don't see the cloud, you're not seeing the physical presence of God in the same way that you saw it by day. It's a different form, but it's by night. And I think the idea here kind of ties into, um, it says, before the eyes of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. I think this ties back into this whole concept. We're talking about the journeys representing like the people of Israel's existence, right? And the, and the traveling in exile and all these different things. And they saw the fire by night. And that reminds me of this, of this concept that like God journeys with his people into exile. He goes with them. He didn't just uh, allow, quote unquote, in a sense, the Holocaust to happen. That wasn't just something that occurred, but he was in the middle of it. He was not, I'm not orchestrating it in the sense of that, but I mean in the middle of it with the people. He was in the gas chambers with the people. He didn't just hear their cries, he was watching it. He was experiencing it with them. The idea that Mashiach and the people of Israel are like intertwined symbolically to the point where it's almost difficult to figure out who is it talking about in the scriptures. It's on purpose, I believe, because I think that Mashiach and the people of Israel are inseparable. They are, in a sense, a, a unity, a unit, in a way. So God himself feels what the people are feeling, and he's with them. So he's fire by night. So in the midst of all the pain and the difficulties, what have we seen over the last couple hundred years? We've seen the resurgence of Judaism in ways that we hadn't seen for centuries prior to that. As awesome, as incredible as guys like you know, Rashi and Rambam are, they were the luminaries in, 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 in a kind of almost like a wasteland, so to speak. We don't... But, but what do we see over the last like 200 years in the midst of things like the Holocaust, in the midst of things like the pogroms, in the midst of all of this awfulness, we're seeing, we're seeing revival. We're seeing like all over the planet, Jews are coming to, to know God. They're, they're religious. They're, um, and, and in a way, even though assimilation is still going on, like out of the hor horrors of the Holocaust, we've seen the rebirth of the state of Israel. We've seen the rebirth of the ethnicity concept of Jewish people, even if not the religion as well as the explosion of things like Chabad and other groups all over the planet. So it's like God is with them in the night, and that's where we are right now. And God is the fire in the night, and he's with them on all their journeys. So I think this is a picture of like the whole rest of history, that when God would stay still, the people would be with him. And when God would move, the people would go. But God is always with them throughout the whole story, even when it doesn't appear that way. Final comments? Chabad Yes, love that one. That's a great one. May we be strengthened, especially in these in these night-filled times sometimes, right? Sir, if you close out in prayer. Father God, thank you for being with us, and we pray that you would send Messiah soon and in our days. In the meantime, Father, we pray that uh, his praise, your praise, would be on our lips, and we would see him soon and in our days. Amen. 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 Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Joshua. Nice work. Nice job.